This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. And welcome to another episode. This is officially episode three, even though we did have an episode three, but that was a special from uh, VO Atlanta. Speaking of which, uh, two of our hosts were there in VO Atlanta, and we did talk to them about the event, but we didn't get into some of the details, and I know Robbo's got a few questions for George and Robert. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of interested to know. You mentioned the LinkedIn seminar, but I'm interested to hear what else was uh, spoken about in terms of topic. Well, I mean, I can look... Um because I, because I was sequestered <laughs> somewhat. I was uh, tucked away. Chained. Yeah. You were robotized. Chained to a studio. I was, I was in a yeah. pretty busy little studio we set up, back to back people in and out in there recording. Mm. But um, the things I was hearing a lot of buzz about that people were, you know, getting a lot of benefit was based around, you know, business and marketing. Like that's the kind of thing that really a lot of voice actors need a lot of help with beyond the mm. acting. Um, because a lot of people come into it with an acting background. Many don't, but they have no entrepreneurial skills whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know how much this business requires entrepreneurial skills. So um, there was speakers that were speaking on that. Paul Strickwarda, Sean Caldwell, who was on our show last time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Rachel Naylor, who's from the UK. Um, Mike Cooper, who's from the U- lives in the US, but he's from the UK, I believe. And Sophia Cruz. Mm-hmm. And as well as David Tyler were speaking on the topics of business and marketing. Um, those were some of the, I, I hear tell, some of the most well-attended panels um, or sessions, I should say. And uh, they had a lot of things going on. I mean, there were any one time up to, I understand, 12 or 13 concurrent sessions going on. That's how many people were there speaking and attending sessions. They had... Many of them were included in the event, but then there were others that were additionally co- uh, had additional cost called X sessions, and those were three hour long sessions, and so th- those were limited to small numbers of people, and they paid extra to go to those. So there was a, a mind boggling amount of content. I would argue to say too much. Just it's so much that you just don't know what to go to. Yeah, it was really big, and I'm sure everyone left going. I wish I went to that other one or I couldn't go to see everything that I wanted to see because, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then my, my girlfriend, Maxine, who you heard about from last time, uh, was there and she's a voice actor and she was trying to get the most of it. And she'd say, you know, you'd get, you'd be there for 20 minutes in a session and then they'd, get all, they'd go off on a tangent on something that they want to rant about. And she'd be thinking, well, I don't want to hear a rant right now. I want, I want good stuff, you know? And then she'd feel like I want to get out of here and go somewhere else. And, She's not the kind of people person that jumps up and le- walks out on somebody presenting. Well, but she, is, were, she is English. Yeah, she's proper. <laughs> yes. Um, she's Liverpudlian. Uh, um, but <laughs> we, um, we were talking about different types of exits, remember? Yes, we were. <laughs> they all had different uh, cultural names attached to them. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there was uh, some great promo presenters. Though. Some, uh, Townsend Coleman was speaking, Tom Pinto. Kay Bess and Jeff Howell, they were all speaking about promo and imaging. There was a good game one. There was, there was a game thing with, the, I think, Fanoi was in that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hugh Edwards also spoke on gaming. And Hugh, is, Hugh and his partner, Peter, are in the UK, and they run this thing called Gravy for the Brain. Um, a very odd name for a program that is, in essence, on-demand video training. Uh, but they've narrowed it down to training in voiceover. Because I figured, I guess they figured that's where the money is. <laughs> so I, I think it was covering a wider range of topics, and, and then they focused it to to voiceover, and uh, that was interesting to, to hear what they had to say. There was a technology and production uh, track as well, but um, which I would have liked to have been a part of, but I, you know I was there as a slave, so I didn't get to do that. <laughs> there was uh, Tim Keenan who runs a studio in California in Orange County and Tim Tippetts and Roy Yokelson Roy known as in the States here we call him Uncle Roy with many years in production and engineering and Tim Tippetts was a really interesting fellow I've interviewed him and had him on my show and he's a really got an interesting background but uh, so I mean those are just some of the tracks I mean there was youth programs um, 
there was uh, commercial and improv, international programs. Um, there were a whole bunch of folks, you know, Spanish-speaking talent doing their own sessions in Spanish. So it was quite remarkable, the ground they covered. So I have, yeah. I have two questions out of that for me. Um, being a bit ignorant when it comes to these sort of shows and how they work over there. I mean, how many people are we talking attending this event? It's obviously not just a few hundred. There was, uh, was 600 than, people. Yeah, yeah. They, they proclaimed about 600 people, you know. Well, okay. I, I would say any one time, I don't think there was that many people there because some people would come in for a day and leave and, mm. and such. But um, yeah, I'm sure there was a north of 500 people there. The, the main hall that held the largest group of people, you know, it was a pretty good-sized room and it was pretty well-packed. Yeah, they yeah. also video streamed a whole bunch of the event. They were selling pay-per-view, pay-per-view video for people oh, that couldn't wow. attend, yeah. um, which I'm sure you can still get a lot of the video. They couldn't possibly cover every session. They only could cover a fraction of them. But they were not only, you know, not only recording but live streaming the, uh, a lot of content there. So it was pretty amazing what they covered. So if you include that then, I mean, attendance is obviously, could actually sort of go through the thousands then, you know, if you include the people who sat down and watched the online yeah, stream. I, I, don't, I don't know how big the video stream was, but yeah, and it could keep on going in theory, I guess. I don't know how long they're running the video stream, but throughout the year or so. Yeah, you pay, the, the, the longer you want access to the content, the, the more you pay. Okay. So yeah. it's like cheaper for a month access and for a full year you pay the most is how he prices it. Yeah. Um, smart, I think. And AP, you are, you're around the voiceover industry here with real-time casting. Why, why don't we see this sort of thing here? Is it, too, is it too small a community or what's the deal with that? Well, it's interesting because I've actually spoken to George about exactly that. And, uh, I, you know, obviously I'm not going to let too much out of the bag, but we've had a, you know, like a, a small discussion about uh, that kind of idea for Australia. And, and I also think that uh, a lot of the things that happen in America, they don't always fit here. They're like, you know, it's not a given. But when you come to things like marketing, setting up home studios, all that kind yeah. of stuff, that uh, it fits beautifully. And it's all just as relevant. And you know, I, I mean, we're obviously going to play a piece of audio in a moment. And if you're talking about home studios, that you know, you know as well, Robbo, that in Australia, there's not that many people that have them. Mm. And uh, when the ones that have got them, there's not that many people that have ones that are acceptable as a full broadcast setup. Um, so it, it kind of is new ground here. Mm. Didn't know that. Does it does it feel like the industry like I I feel like the voiceover industry in um in the US is sort of expanding right now and mm. there's much more content through all the different, you know, online radio and YouTube and as people get more savvy about how they produce their their media, they're either hiring people or they're just trying to do a better job with their own voiceover and how they present it. But it seems like it's a you know a booming industry or increasing. Does it get? Do you have the same feeling in Australia? Well, I, I do know because I did some. I got some stats from a friend of mine who's a treasurer and had access to um, U.S. government stats. And uh, it was a document very similar to the one that um, Voices.com did, funnily enough. Uh, we did ours about three years ago, and the stats showed that the voice industry in, the, in North America was $3.2 billion. Uh, that was the value of the whole industry as a whole. Uh, with the, and they were predicting a growth of 18% over the coming years. And they also, and one of the other figures was by 2020, they estimated that the voiceover industry would be worth about $5.4 billion in North America. Wow. What? That's It's, it's, it's that's huge inspiring. and it's growing. And in fact, yesterday I heard an interview with a guy from Canada who's one of the big players in gaming. And Canada set up a tax write-off for people who invested into what we call you know, traditional media of, of television film and they expanded that tax write-off into gaming. And they're currently sitting number three in the world of, of uh, making uh, video games behind uh, the US and China. No kidding. Wow. It's huge. Well, wow. Well, speaking of Canada, just one little last little thing. There was, we, I know a voice coach from Canada who uh, was at the conference, and it was her debut uh, conference in seven years because she made a little boo-boo coming into the States some one time and taught without uh, having the correct permission to do so. And the U.S. said, well, we don't want you back for about seven years. 
Wow. So wow. that was a big deal. And so she was able to come this time. I don't, I don't want to name her name, just keep, you know, keep her, no need to call her out. But I mean, that was, a, that was a really, really big deal and a lesson to a lot of folks coming in from outside the country, wanting to come here in the States and, and teach and make money without proper uh, papers, whatever. It, it's funny, isn't it, how, how that, how that qualifies as um, an official teacher, you know, I mean, because mm -hmm. I, I can guarantee George or Robert, if you guys came to Australia and set up a, you know, camp here and said, I'm going to teach people how to set up home studios or whatever, wouldn't be an issue at all. No one would care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. You guys wouldn't cane us? Oh, we would just nope. for the fun, no. but I mean, we wouldn't. No. <laughs> well, we could maybe take you up to the Northern Territory and feed you to the crocodiles or something, maybe. Yeah, right. boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a different different uh, kettle of fish down here. I think we're mm -hmm. a, a bit more easygoing. It's interesting can of worms you open, though. Uh, I mean, in terms of the state of the industry, because uh, in terms of home studios here, they're not as widely accepted, are they? AP, they're starting to become so. I think there's still a bit of pushback um, too. I, I still get yeah. studios, and I get told by my agent, "Look, you know," I said, "Look, I can do this from here. They can, you know, Source Connect or or." phone patch or ISDN, whatever they want to do, and I'll, it saves me driving into Melbourne. And it's like, no, 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 no. No, no we want no. you to go in. Or uh, if I've got a studio in Sydney, which has happened a couple of times, it's like, well, I, they can, they're going to source connect to the studio in Melbourne anyway, so why not source connect to mine? That's right. But no, no, don't, we, don't, we don't want to talk about that. You just go to, um, into yeah. Melbourne. As a, as a studio, the, the, the interesting thing for me that I find is I don't have... I, I, I don't get pushback on my work. People listen to my work or watch my work and go, man, that's awesome. And then they ask, where's your studio? And you say, well, it's in Castle Hill. Oh, man, that's a long drive. Well, yeah, it's a home studio. Oh, oh uh, yeah, okay, we'll get back to you. Yeah. No Which kidding. is interesting. Yeah, oh. yeah. So the work sounds awesome. We're happy with the work. And, and the work that I always put up on a demo is always stuff that I've done out of here because I don't want any false pretenses in that respect. Drop the See, word home. Yeah. Call it a... Yeah. Call it a project a project studio studio yeah um because that's still legit i mean we call them project studios in the states mm. um they're basically a studio for a specific person's projects yeah uh you know but i i think that ship has sailed in the sense that the voiceovers um i mean that's sort of that article that you and i wrote George, where it's like, you know, at this point, voiceover talent, at least in the U.S., are practically expected to have their own home setup. Um, yeah. And then the people hiring are really seeking out those because then they sort of use that as a way of having a lower cost because they're not paying at least for the remote studio. They're still paying for the connection, but traditionally you'd pay for two studios and a connection. And, and now they're getting much more accustomed to paying for one studio and a connection and the voiceover is just expected to throw their facility into the, you know, yep. as part of their service. Mm -hmm. But then I also know, I was just talking to some customers um, who are doing mixing for, you know, cable shows like uh, documentary type or reality type shows. And, and they're, they're mixing these from their project studios and, and using various remote technologies to, you know, have their day of playback and commenting. And even that stuff is being done all remotely to the point where one of the people I was talking with was basically saying, get me out of New York. It's too expensive to live here. And yeah. I can do this all remotely and I'm going to go live someplace where it's not so expensive to live and I'm going to keep my clients. Yeah, I agree. I, and I, I, to me, I mean, we all accept Skype or FaceTime as something we use on a daily basis to communicate with friends or colleagues in meetings. People sit around a screen and do a Skype meeting. But there still seems to be this kind of weird pushback about working from studios like this, and I, I don't understand it. Uh, maybe if we had, a, a you know, like a, a Skype or a FaceTime kind of version of a home studio where you can see me in the booth, I can see you in the control room, it looks like we're, I'm actually behind the glass, but the glass is actually um, an LCD screen. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on who's making that decision as to where the session is going to be done. Because if it's, you know, studios, they want to protect their interests. They don't want uh, loss of income um, from all these home studios. And that's, you know, that, that slippery slope has already happened in the States for sure. Um, there's studios in LA that I was afraid to walk into thinking that my face was on a dartboard in the back room. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're the enabler. It's him. Yeah. Because yeah. my job is to basically take all these talent out of their studios and make their home studios 
sound like professional studios. But I, I mean, this is also anecdotal. Uh, Robert, you would probably have some more to say about this recording people all around the world, but the the folks that I that work with me, which are outside of the states, tend to seem to tend to have a higher standard of sound quality that they are trying to achieve. Um, they seem to go a little bit more to the nth degree to achieve you know the best possible sound quality. Whereas in the states, I think we have a little bit lower acceptable quality. I mean, this is subjective, but I, think, I agree. Robert? Well, I've talked to um, some talent in Canada. And, you know, they're sitting there with API hardware and Neumann M149s and really high-end stuff where I'm even like, you know, I've got, I've got some music to record with that. And then, <laughs> and right. then on, the, on the flip side, you know, everyone in the States, they're, you know, the 416 is holding strong, but really in the face of an M49, M149, the 416 is a, not the same mic. And, not um, the same class, no. No, I mean it's and and the, and and even that like not every talent has a four sixteen. Everyone's trying to you know like push it more towards the like that road mic that we were looking at. Like how close is this one to a four sixteen? And everyone's trying to sort of get away with equivalents of some type. And I think certainly with broadcast and TV, there's definitely more of an attitude of sounds good is good. You know, like, <laughs> that's one of my slogans that I use on one of the forums. Is it sounds good. It is good. Well, Come that's on. yeah, but that's interesting because we've got a piece of um, we've got a piece of audio from a session that Robbo did the other day, uh, which highlighted one of the issues that even if it sounds good in your place, by the time the engineer gets their hands on it, it may sound bloody awful. Have you got that piece of uh, audio there, Robbo? Um, I'll give it to you. This is it gained up. I want to make sure it's making it across. Let me make yeah, sure. Yeah, I can, it, I can it, hear it. it. Output. It definitely made it across. Yep. Yeah, oh, yeah, I heard it yeah. clearly. Yeah, it was there. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like a. It's sort of a. I'll amplify with my mouth. I'll imitate it. Kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I think it sounds acoustic. I think it's really? environmental. I kind of do because it lacks. Some high frequencies, I think, or that's yes. my ears. It's not a straight up white noise. It's definitely not yeah. like a typical white noise. Yeah, I know where this person lives, and it's quite a busy road. But that doesn't sound to me like traffic noise. It's not traffic noise. No, yeah. I, I think I, it's I, a it sounds to me fan, like it's, it's, a hard it's drive. Uh, my first yeah. thought it was a fan. That was my first initial impression. Was it's a fan running on, on a very teeny weeny fan on a mm. device. That's my mm. first yeah, and then and then off. like sitting off axis enough, you get that weird phasiness, so it doesn't quite have the it was phasing high that's frequencies. For sure. Yep, um, but then thought more about it, then started to think it was a piece of equipment with a technical issue in it, There's some circuit going going yeah. kaplooey, a capacitor or something. I don't, you know, it's. I'm very anxious to find out what it is that's being used to make that recording. I, I had an issue years ago when I first had a really ordinary setup, and um, I had a Behringer little mixing desk, little four-channel mixer, and that sound to me, it's very similar. When when the mm. thing let go, that's what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The interesting thing to throw in the mix here is. This was actually this person's person's first online session from their inverted commas brand new studio. So it would be interesting to know whether it's it's if it's old gear, you could be right. But if it's new gear, that kind of takes that out of the equation. What about if you had the gain around the wrong way? So you you're actually the output wasn't coming necessarily. You had the mic turned down, and you were trying to get get gain from somewhere else. Would that have a similar effect? Absolutely. Uh, Your gain stage yeah, is everything. Definitely. Yeah. 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 It would right. increase the noise for sure. Yeah. What yeah, kind of sure. noise? I'm not sure. I, I would think it'd be more more a broadband white white noise. That's right. Uh, Robert, room, what kind of level were you time. getting of like actual signal? With, with Pretty good level. I was sitting around, uh, it was probably peaking around minus, uh, minus four, minus five and averaging minus 15, minus 20 around there somewhere. Yeah. So mm-hmm. very, very healthy signal. And yep. then... Um, the compression that you probably applied a little bit brought that noise up. Um, yeah, I just like yeah, the sample you sent us with the voice was peaking at minus two point six two, and average was. Or are you guys using LUFS or LUFS? LUFS. LUFS. Yeah. LUFS. Minus twenty one point three LUFS. So that's a healthy. That's a healthy signal. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, yeah. I probably gained that up a touch because I actually just copied that out of my session. So did I'd you do any then, troubleshooting of it, or did you did you catch this after the fact? Was this like you I know, caught you were it after so the fast? fact? To be honest with you, that's what right. I, I, it was. One of those days where we had to, I had an hour and a half to record about five promos and six pages of sweepers. So it this was is, just wow. like this is wow. the nightmare of the remote engineer. This is why some remote en- yeah. some engineers are like I don't like voice talent with home studios because their quality level. Like they're not aware of what they're listening for. And so they're like, oh, that yeah. sounds great. Because yeah, it sounds better than your built-in mic on your Mac. That's but right. It's not really, you know, like once everything gets exposed. And here's my lesson out of this is because I, I do do it with a lot, of, uh, um, a lot of other voiceover artists who image other stations, but they're established. They've had their studios going for a while, like Lofty Fulton, for example, and guys like that. Oh, yeah. This person was booked a couple of days before the session. So it should have occurred to me to, when the agent said she, this person's just set up their new studio, it should have occurred to me to say, well, can they send me a sample? And I think that's the lesson I've taken from this is if it's a new, new talent, new, new studio, uh, you know, send me a, a sample first. I think that's, that's definitely the lesson I've learned. But I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I always do that anyway. Like if I get a new client, I always say, what do you want? And I'll send maybe a sample of this microphone, a sample of uh, another mic or another pre mm. or whatever and just say, which, which one works for you, you know? Mm. Absolutely. And I, do, based on that, do you think uh, like George or, or Robert, if, well, Robert particularly, uh, and Robbo, would you like to see um, a talent, if they're working from their own place, list the gear they've got and maybe even send you a, you know, if push comes to shove, send you a photograph of the booth? For me, it's like um, the, main, the main thing would be send me an audio example. And so I've done this a couple of times uh, and I've actually had pretty good luck with it. So sometimes you find talent, they, they don't have a setup. They're in an area where the nearest real sort of post-production studio is still an hour, hour and a half drive from them, like a good city. And so what is around their, their area is, um, you know, your typical sort of 20 to $50 an hour music studio kind of thing. And then you you really start wondering because sometimes these guys are complete gearheads and they've got it down. And the real question is like, do they have some cavernous room that they love to get giant drum sounds out of? And that's not going to work. So the more the bigger question is like, what what their room sounds like is probably the first piece of gear that's in question. And then their mic and uh, you know just hook up and let's do a quick. Just it doesn't have to be the person. Just like with the engineer, let's just hear your room and hear your chain. What's in it doesn't really matter. I mean if 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 we're usually when I end up talking to these people, it becomes a geek fest, anyways. And so I, <laughs> yes. they're happy. I've done one of those. With they're you. happy to yes. be like, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and they're happy to be like, well, I've got a a, a K two, and I've got a you know, like a four fourteen. I've got this mic and that mic, and you're like, oh, let's try this mic. But ultimately, kind of like like we said, it's um, most of these mics, even the the Chinese mics, are going to cut it pretty well. So yeah, it it makes it a lot easier, a lot less stressful if you check out these studios ahead of time, any new situation, unless it's really like some post house where you just go to their website and you're like, kaboom, like their credits, everything speaks for itself and you don't really have to worry about who, who it is that you're booking with. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you pretty much got to deal with whatever's there gear wise. But I, you're right. I think you just want to hear it first and know that when that mic is open and you're recording, that all those problems are taken care of. So you can actually focus on right. I've got an hour to get this done. Let's just charge into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, usually the the bigger hurdle with a lot of these um, places is the concept of a mix minus is more foreign to them, and they're dealing with more like a consumer kind of latency low latency setup so they're more limited in their ability to send out something that's separate from their headphone feed um and so you're sometimes coaching them into how to how to get that set up but generally i mean i've also had the experience where a lot of the more affordable gear works really well in ideal situations but i even i've even got this um problem um where i've got a computer monitor that's got a wall wart and um, I use the same computer monitors in both of our rooms, but one of them I have to switch the mic preamp out because we just went with like it's talkback. Like we'll just jam it into the like go rummage through the closet, find a mic preamp, and there you go. Well, this particular mic preamp loves to hear all of the noise that this monitor can generate, whereas the other mic preamp <laughs> yeah. seems to be completely immune to it. And yeah. 
it's it's not killing us, you know, but it's kind of annoying when every time the clients open up the talk back, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like something to solve, and that's often where the differences in the gear is not even so much the initial capability of it, but its ability to be more resilient to other noises and problems. Well, that was the interesting problems. thing when I got this this file from this person that my talkback was actually in the file as well. So I was kind of glad that I was muting my mic on this end when they were performing because it was full of right. my talkback in between. Wow. Right. They didn't have a mix minus. No. They didn't have the mix minus, no. exactly. No, and that's right. It was going straight down. Now, we should uh, introduce our guest today. Talking of home studios, this person uh, used uh, Dan Leonard to help set up her home studio or personal studio or project studio, project whichever you want to call studio. it. Project, project studio. I like, I like that name. I'm going with that. I'm Are you going, going with that one? Sound. Project studio. Yeah. Nice. Projectile studio? <laughs> Projectile studio. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's, what the, that's what the clients do when they hear the mixes, they projectile vomit. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> or as we say in Australia, chunder. And talking, chunder. <laughs> talking about Australia, let's get another Aussie on the line, Larissa Gallagher. Are you a Gallagher or a Gallagher? I am a Gallagher. Otherwise, my parents would probably disown me, but I find that if I have to do things in American accent, it's easier to slate my name as Gallagher. Either way, I'm yeah. happy if you just know my name. Let's just... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, enough of that. Uh, you are originally from Perth, I gather. because you am. Yeah, and you went to WAPA, uh, for those who don't know, which is the West Australian um, Performing Arts West uh, Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Oh, okay. Who was in your year of any notoriety apart from yourself, of um, course? Well, at the moment, Fiona Choi, who is currently starring in the SBS television show that I can't remember the name. That's crazy. Yes, I know the one, the, the sort of sitcom kind of show or comedy. Yeah, yeah. Si- yeah, it's kind of a sitcom. It's based on the life of the young boy kind of growing up. Yeah. In the suburbs and his trials and tribulations and the family and it's excellent. It's really funny. It's really heartbreaking. Um, I think it's really good showing of how good Australians are at representing diversity when they want to. Yeah. Um, it's a really fantastic show. Anyway, so she was in my year. Uh, Matthew Frank, who's quite a well-known composer and does a lot of work with the Melbourne Theatre Company. Um, other people are going to kill me. If yeah, I yeah. People's That's notes. right. <laughs> and the other people we haven't mentioned because we ran out of time. That's Otherwise right. we would have done. Because we wh- cut it from the scene. I did. I, I edited that bit out. <laughs> but uh, Whopper has got a, a, actually a really good reputation. A lot of you know big people have gone through there. It used to be an Australian NIDA, but I think Whopper's giving it a good run for its money. And I've got a funny... Did Hugh Jackman go through Whopper? He did. He actually graduated the year before... I started, so I never got the chance to work with him, but he used to work at a local coffee shop on Sunday nights that we all used to go and hang out at a restaurant coffee shop and make sure that we always got served by Hugh because he was a pretty fabulous actor then and a pretty pretty fabulous person then as well. So, and, and his yeah. looks didn't go astray either, I'm sure. Let's just say <laughs> coffee was more enjoyable when it was served by Hugh Jackman. <laughs> <laughs> There's not many people can actually claim that. I had my coffee served to me by Hugh Jackman. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, really, really good-hearted guy. I think I think the beauty of Whopper is because it is so far away. You're slightly disadvantaged because you don't get as much of the networking and getting to know the who's who of the East Coast, but you have the safety and security of not being looked at, so you can kind of fail without yeah. it ruining your career or anything like that. You can, can explore and and uh, learn your challenges and get better at things without kind of having watchful eye over you. So yeah. I think that's what makes WAPA really great. And I think kind of like NIDA and the rest of the schools, because it's an audition-only school, it does mean that the people that they take in are already highly vetted and they generally tend to put people in 
class years that complement each other as well. So that uh, helps to make a really good cohesive year group. Yeah, because I, I was talking to, actually I won't mention her name, but a very well-known actor uh, based in Australia. Um, she didn't go to NIDA and we were talking about NIDA and she was kind of the same age group, maybe a bit younger actually, uh, but she could have been there with maybe a bit after Mel Gibson, that kind of era. Mm-hmm. And said if she had actually gone to NIDA, she would never have become an actor. It had the potential to be quite toxic. Um, yeah, I think that's all kind of schools. I think some people are well suited to educational practice and some people are more suited to kind of learning from the ground up or learning in the field itself. And, you know, I know very successful actors who have not had a day of schooling in their lives and other actors who've had all this the schooling in the world. And I think people just take their own paths. But if you are meant to be in one and you're trying to live in the other, it can break you apart. Because I do know that NIDA and WAPA to a degree kind of wanted to break you and remould you to make sure that you could be the best that you can be. And that sometimes can hurt people, but other people thrive in that experience. Yeah. So was your plan coming out of WAPA to be an actor? Yes. Uh, Musical theatre was what I studied and that was kind of my main drive. But to be perfectly honest, I think at that time, which still remains, but I think I just kind of was so in love with the performing arts, just any opportunity to work, I was happy to do. I just, my, my kind of goal and aim was to be a working actor at the time and so... My focus was musical theatre, but I was auditioning for a lot of things. And, uh, yeah, I think just as things happen and timing and the way of the world is works for some people straight out of school and other people struggle for a long time, which, which I did. And I had just enough work to always make me think this was a thing I was meant to be doing and that I could really succeed in this world, but never quite enough to give up the day job or to feel personally satisfied by the career that came afterwards. So how did you end up in America? <laughs> so that's an interesting story. <laughs> I um, I, uh, I actually was doing a workshop of a new musical in Australia, in Melbourne, which had become very successful and we were performing at the International Comedy Festival, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and we were sold out every night and then a producer came in and he loved the show and he wanted to take it on a big tour of Australia and then talk about taking it to the West End, etc. And I was one of the original cast members and I'd kind of been given the, you know, the wink and the, the nudge saying, you'll be right, don't worry about it, we're, we're on your side, we're going to get you in. And I didn't get the role and so... At the time, that was devastating because I had this moment of who am I if the role, if I'm not good enough for the role that I feel like I kind of created. And so I chucked it all in and I moved back to Perth and started working for a radio station, working for Nova, which was fantastic, but behind the scenes doing promotions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know, I really... didn't know that I didn't know this bit this is interesting I, I had oh, no idea no no yeah because I think I needed to be in a creative industry but anything to do with kind of theater or film or television at the time it was just I was really hurt by the whole experience and so I I've found that at the radio station I was able to get that creative buzz but without the pressure of my head and my little inner critic saying you failed, you failed, you failed. So um, yeah, the Nova family in Perth welcomed me and fabulous and I loved working there but it was all behind the scenes and subsequently I did do a bit of theatre in Perth because friends were doing shows and they invited me in. So it was, again, pressure off a little bit because it was in a safe space. And then out of nowhere, I ended up meeting my now husband, who is American, and he knocked me over the head and dragged me off to the (laughs) States, (laughs) at which point I kind of quit theatre again. So I didn't really have any main intention of of going into that when I moved over to to the States. But as life has it, he ended up hearing a voiceover reel that I had done back in Australia that I'd never really used, but I'd recorded it and we'd been mucking around with doing uh, invitations and character voices and stuff. And he came home one day and he said, 
off you go, you need to go and do this. Oh. And I was like, no, what if I fail again? This is going to be terrible and I'm going to be a mess and it's going to be all your fault. And he said, oh, I'll take that risk. You go and make that happen. And so kind of pulled my bootstraps up and opened the wonderful world of the internet and dove in. Wow. So I'm going, just dive, you know, going back a bit, only out of, for my, my curiosity more than anything. Um, when you were at Nova, what year was that? That was in 2004 to 2000, no, 2005 to 2007. Okay. It wasn't that long ago then. I, I think I know no, who no. you were working with. Yeah, because I, I, I actually did a year of promotions in Perth as well. Uh, back in when ninety, well, long before then, but it was back in nineteen ninety four. Um At uh, which be, what was it used to be ninety six, and they changed it to Triple M. It was a disaster. Um, That's right. So that was kind of almost the end of my radio career. I had another maybe three years after that in Sydney, and then gave it away. But you probably would have been working with Gary Roberts. Was the big chief Gary Roberts? Yep. Yes. Yeah, I know Gary. Yes. Yeah, it was really, it was really great environment. Actually, it was it was. Um, I think if I want to be dramatic, I could say it kind of really saved me in a way because it pulled me out of my funk and it was just a really. I think because live anything gives you a buzz that is incomparable. The other weird thing that we have a that's a coincidence as well is that I met my wife in Perth. I did not know that either. Is she a Perth girl? No, she's from Melbourne, but she was there working with uh, working for Westfield. In fact, she was um, over there to set up um, Westfield Carousel. I think it was the first Westfield in Perth, from memory. Yeah, I think it was definitely the first, like, big shopping mall. Yeah, kind of thing. And we lived a bit of a way away from Carousel, but it was like that thought of. Um, oh, we all got to go because it's going to be like America and the movies and everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it wasn't. Um, or maybe it was. That was <laughs> yeah, no, it was pretty good. Look. Yeah. Look. Shopping mall's a shopping mall. That's correct. Yeah. Well, now we say that, I think. Yeah. I think I do kind of also forget that growing up in Perth and in the time we grew up, you still kind of had that get on your bikes and go and no, only three television stations and just all those kind of little things, no big shopping mall, all the movies came six months later and yep. now with with uh, the expediency of everything and you can see a movie yesterday kind of thing before it even opens. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems bizarre, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I, I went to Perth, first time I went was in 85... Mm-hmm. for the West Australian Music Awards, and then I went back in 86 to host it again. Um, well, that's right, because you used to host... Um, a TV show there, yeah, called Tracks the Music. Tracks the Music. It's yeah. what all the kids listen to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, that was um, another lifetime ago, or maybe two lifetimes ago. I'm not quite sure, really. <laughs> I'm trying to work that one out. So, anyway, now we've got you into America. I'm assuming you landed... Initially in Los Angeles? No, actually, I um, was in Washington, D.C. because Ed, my husband, was based there at the time. He didn't have family or anything, just the, the job that he was doing happened to be there, which, to be honest, D.C. was an incredible entree into the U.S. because it's so international there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of movement obviously with different administrations and so there's lots of different people moving back and forth so they're very open and welcoming to newcomers to the city and obviously being the political heart of America it was you couldn't really get more American than that and so I watched all my episodes of West Wing and really <laughs> <laughs> learnt my way around the city but no it was great and it didn't feel kind of the claustrophobic uh, inner city of like a New York which as fabulous and wonderful as it is I wonder if I had have landed there it might have been a bit overwhelming but DC was a really great middle ground and then yeah after a few years there we decided to yeah kind of follow my career a little bit and see what we could make happen and moved to the big city wow yeah. so how did you get your first break a lot of hard work. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, it's amazing. The harder you work, the luckier you get. Strange it's that. It's so true. Although one may say, 
Andrew Peters, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, my first break into animation, I think, actually happened because of you, because you knew a manager in New York who was looking for a female Australian ah, based in I do remember the US. that. Yes, I do. Yes. Wow. And then so I auditioned for Nickelodeon's Bubble Guppies and got the role and got a few episodes on that. And that I think that, especially in the animation world, which is notoriously difficult to break into, that kind of helped open the doors for sure. But um, to go back to kind of the heart of it, I really I felt like it was a lot of small breakthroughs that kind of slowly opened as I kind of walked through them so that by the time I got to LA, I had enough of my own personal clients. I, I pretty much started my career online, for want of a better word, yeah. doing a lot of the pay-to-plays, which at the time, the majority of them were a lot more reputable than they are now. Yes. Um, <laughs> without going into that conversation. <laughs> yes. Um, and, yeah, and then just kind of promoting myself through, you know, cold email marketing and things through, like that and got a lot of really good base clients. And so that gave me the confidence that, look, I don't need an agent. I don't need all the bells and whistles that people say you have to have to be an actor because I was like, look, I'm making a decent living out of just kind of putting myself out there and doing my own thing after getting a demo made, etc. And um, yeah, but then by the time I came to Los Angeles, I think I just recognised that there was a gap in the market for Australian females and there were definitely some talented people over here, but by no means anywhere close to the glut of Americans, etc. So I made an effort to, whilst working on my American accent, whilst honing my commercial skills and everything in that area, I kind of pretty much turned up at agent meetings saying, look, I know you don't have an Australian on your roster. I can fill that gap for you and these are the clients I come with and these are the jobs I've gotten. So... Yeah, I mean, my big break could have been the first agent I got, the first animation gig I got, the first video game gig I got. I think it just all kind of has built on itself to then get me to where I am now. Mm. No, well, there's a really interesting thing about performers. They see someone and go, I want to be like that person. And you end up copying someone and you forget the yeah. most important thing. There's only one of you. Yeah, well, and that's a really great point because I would say to that, I remember being in Australia and seeing my friends around me kind of succeed and things happening for them and and uh, one very good friend indeed who is now uh, very prominent as a director, we always used to sit around at night being like, how does he just go? He's like an amazing networker. He just talks to people and he's got this knack and blah, 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 blah. And then you'd say to him, what do, what do you do? What's the secret? What's the trick? And he's like, I'm just being myself. I'm just talking to people. And we're all sitting there going, no, he's got some secret. He's just not telling us, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't until I came to LA and I think I because I'd gone through what I'd gone through in Australia, I, ju I just was in a little bit of a, you know what? insert expletive here you know yeah. it's like <laughs> yeah. I got nothing to lose yeah people hate me they hate me if they love me they love me great I've got my own clients it doesn't matter I'm just gonna go out and be myself and obviously being myself and being Australian was different to a lot of people so rather than pretending to be an American when I walked into the room I would just be Australian and that's who I am. And subsequently, you know, over the next few years, had a lot of people going, oh, but you're so great at networking. What do you do? And how do you do it? And just those same kind of thoughts echoed in my head of like, ah, oh, it really is just be yourself and be okay with who you are. Because I think the biggest thing is usually, oh, no one's going to like me. So I couldn't possibly just be me because yeah. what do I have to offer? But when you go, well, who cares if you don't like me? I, I am who I am and that's it. And then kind of people tend to gravitate to that. So, yeah, just kind of interesting that the last thing I thought of, you know, making myself be different and be embracing what was different about me rather than trying to blend into the crowd and pretend to be another American. Mm. Yeah, the thing that was different about me was what helped me stand out, which then people trust you because they're like, you're a good actor, you do a good job can you do an American accent? And I was like, well, yes, I can. And then you start getting those jobs. So that's kind of how 
all that happened. It's funny because we spoke with Helen Lloyd, who's um, a UK actress and, uh, and known for her voice work now. And, uh, and the question was for her, being someone who, who actually grew up in England, I know how English people react to self-promotion. They hate it. And kind of Australians are sort of in the same boat, really. Uh, Americans yeah, have no well, problem with it whatsoever. No, well, and I think that's Australians kind of grow up with that tall poppy syndrome. It's like, yeah. don't stand up too tall, blah, blah, blah. But then you do come over here and look, there is a ton of talented people, but there's also a glut of people who think they're talented and will <laughs> talk themselves up. But they're not, or they're not, they're, they're happy to talk themselves up, but they're not willing to put the work in. And when I started realising that, I was like, why am I stepping back from the crowd? I'm actually better than this person, but people know that person more because they're willing to talk about themselves, even though they have nowhere near as many credits or as much experience as I do. And again, that was one of those moments of like, I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore. If I'm good for something, if I'm right for something, I'm going to say it. And if I've done a good job on something, I'm going to say it. And I've I've done a crap job on something, I'm going to say that too. So. Yeah. There's a funny thing, though. It's the 80-20 the theory, uh, which is, you know, the 80% bullshit and the 20% talent. And it seems to work, <laughs> strangely. Um, you yeah. can bullshit your way into uh, a really nice career if you're willing to go for it and... Uh, well, that's right. And I think Australians generally tend to be more successful over here than one might think, but mainly just because so many people have such an arsenal of work or of training or of ability behind them before they come over. Whereas, you know, it's not just that I've got my, I've got the stars in my eyes and I'm just going to pack my bags and go and see what happens. I think Australians kind of tend to really, you know, dig their heels in and go look, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly. So, And it's also harder here. People think it's harder mm. to go somewhere else like, the, you know, to the UK or to the US. But the fact is there's so few of us because the population's small uh, yeah. that to succeed in Australia is much harder than to see, succeed in a country that's got a population of 300 million. Which seems incredible. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the sense of you kind of go... You grow up like I mean I know a lot of people grow up having the oh, I'm going to go to Hollywood and be a big star but I, I never had that because in my head I was like who does that no you know no yeah. one really gets to do that that just is that only happens in the movies or it's one or two people or whatever but I really do think it's like any dream you have if you really commit to it and try and try and try. And even if it keeps kicking you down, if you really know and feel deep down this is the thing for you and it's not just about money and it's not just about fame and, you know, I don't know, conventions and credits and whatever, but it's really what drives you to do it, I think you eventually get there and somewhere like Australia, as you say, it's just, unfortunately, there's more talented people than there are opportunities available. So what better place than to get out? Yeah. The one thing that's different about our business, changing the subject slightly, as opposed Please. to being an actor. An actor, you rock up and you you know, you know learn your lines and you either in front of a camera or you're on stage. But now, of course, with uh, being a voice actor, um, you have to have the full toolkit. So now, all of a sudden, we're uh, not rocking up to a studio and having someone set the mic up, give us a glass of water, here's the script, and direct us through the thing. We're, like we are right now, sitting in our own studios doing stuff. So my question to you is, how did you first build your studio at home? I mean, where did you get your advice from? And did you get advice and learn by mistakes? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Many mistakes. Um, No, no, no. I I think that goes with the territory of what I said, that I was fortunate in a way because I started in the online world. I kind of immersed myself into every voiceover forum into every kind of publication and Facebook group and LinkedIn group and everything I could get. And so I slowly after a while kind of started to pass out what was BS and what was legitimate or what names did I keep hearing over and over. And I was lucky enough to come across people like George Widom pretty quickly, um, Dan Leonard, one of his... Uh, Compadres. Compadres, thank yeah. you. 
Um, yeah, and so my, I think actually my first quote, a very open quote, home studio, <laughs> was actually the house that I lived in had tile floors. And so I walked him around on Skype in through my house and we set up a room divider covered in blankets, blanket on the floor with the open, not walk-in closet, but open closet, but that it kind of formed a little corner around it. And that kind of did for a while because I mainly did at that stage kind of telephony work or corporate video work, but a lot of stuff that lived online. So what I've now come to learn that the compression when anything goes online is so much that you can kind of get away with it not being as pristine. Um, But even at one point we had a blow-up mattress kind of resting as a ceiling to kind of stop, you know, but it started from there. And then the more money I made, I could invest in a better room divider and better sound blankets. And then I bought like my first booth. And so just kind of, it was a process of elimination. It was a process of the more money I made, the better the booth became, the better the microphone became, the better the studio setup became. And, um, yeah, and then I discovered the joys of Mr. George Widom, who uh, created editing stacks for me because I'm by no means an engineer in any sense of the word. Like, yep. I can put my levels up and down and that's about it. But he um, he offers a service whereby you can send him your audio and he will create like a one button click stack for you that will clean it all up and make it sound the best that it can with the facilities that you have. And so then that became a game changer because I didn't have to fully learn the world of engineering, but I knew that whatever my output was, it was improved by what George had created and subsequently became like the best of all professional studios that you could get, but from your own home. Perfect. Yeah, George. George is a clever man. He's uh, he actually analysed some of my stuff from here as well. Mm, um, indeed. So you sure went, other people can do it, but yeah. George. Oh, George is great. Well, correct. And we're using Source Connect now. I mean, that's the other part of the show. Well, now I actually have two studios, which I'm excited about. So I have my home studio, um, which is a audio booth and set up with a. Neumann TLM 103 and Apogee One, Adobe Audition. And then I have another studio, which is on the other side of the city, because if anyone who knows Los Angeles, you can be stuck in traffic forever. Yep. And so if you happen to be up one end of the city, you kind of want to stay there (laughs) rather than go back and forth if you've got a few things to do. So with a girlfriend of mine who's also a voice actor, Yeni Alvarez, we went in together and we um, rented a studio in Burbank and I actually had another audio booth, which is another story. But anyway, we set that up and we have a Sennheiser 416 and we have like a legit engineering rig in our studio that I don't even pretend to really understand, but we've got ISDN and Source Connect, Source Connect Standard, IPDTL, anything you want. Yeah. We got it. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I've often thought about that myself, but then... I don't really, I, there's so many people I know in Melbourne that I don't really need it. I'll just say, can I drop into your joint? So that kind of works. Yeah, well, and to be honest, I could have done the same, but I find my personality tends to be if I drop into friends' houses, I don't really want to do work. I just want to sit around and drink wine and coffee. And yes, and yes, and yes. Waste a ton of time. <laughs> so, Funny you should um, say that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. to each their own, but it's it's been really great for us to have the other space as well. And and as you were saying, it was just a element of over time, kind of you just immerse yourself into the world that you love. And I was making money and I'm in a position to have that situation, so why not take advantage of it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, say, yeah. But there's, you know, I'm, I mean, I talked to Robbo and he's younger than me, of course, but we still remember the days of um, tape and cartridge players and, you know, splicing tape and all that kind of thing. And now we're sort of in the box. But you kind of look at it and go... God, with all this AI stuff going on, I mean, what the hell is going to happen in the next five or ten years? What are your thoughts? I don't know. I, You know, because you do hear about the scariest of them all, which is the 
audio programs that can just take a voice print and then create what it can create and you know then I know virtual reality sessions where motion capture and everything and that once they've kind of captured your body and your face print they can morph that into thousands of different things I mean they're not really meant to but you can't control or police that sort of thing so it is what it is I I don't know I, I like I like to believe in humanity remaining a face-to-face kind of business and that while for sure there is that element of the ease of technology I think removing humans from the equation I think that's going to be longer than people think I think the ease of having a digital program to do that doesn't outweigh the kind of the experiential joy that you get with actually working with another person. So I don't know, that might be me being naive or a little bit, you know, starry-eyed about it, um, but that's that's my hope, at least, at least in the world we work in. Yeah. I think, look, there is a consistent answer. Everyone I've asked has pretty well said the same thing, that yeah. they kind of see AI as being for on hold or instructional videos, that kind of thing. But when it comes to the nuances of you know, like a proper read, selling something or being intimate or a narration or an audio audio books, AI is not going to cut it. I say can't. It may. <laughs> not at the moment. The technology wouldn't work. And there are nuances about the human voice that I don't know how you would capture that because it changes That's continually. Right. Yeah, well, and I, and I even think the interaction, uh, the interactional element of kind of working with that person is even... Like one could instruct an AI to create X product, but I don't know how far off we are actually that artificial intelligence coming up with its own thoughts and emotions. Maybe thoughts, but emotional responses I think is a long way off and that's a good thing because I think human beings haven't been able to work out how to control their own emotions so I don't know how they're teaching that well, that's true. to artificial intelligence so <laughs> Absolutely we'll true. see we'll see I think you're dead right there and on that uh, bombshell yeah we should um, get back to the other chaps and uh, carry on with the show but uh, Larissa thank you very much for your time and see you in LA for a glass thank of wine thank you can't wait thanks for having me everyone a uh, nice glass of red well there you go that was Larissa Gallagher or Gallagher uh, the the woman who can claim to have Hugh Jackman making coffee for her. Yeah, and I think you've got you a cool. Jackman story, Robbo. What's your Jackman story? My Jackman story is I actually played rugby against Hugh Jackman when I was at school. I didn't know it at the time, uh, but I put two and two together that we actually went through year 12 in the same year and he, play, he went to school at the rival school down the road from us and I also found out that he played first 15 the same as me. So when you do the maths, that pretty much means that I've I've tackled and rucked Hugh Jackman. The Wolverine. The, the Wolverine. Wolverine. There you go. I've put him on the ground. I've put him on his ass at some stage. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> now, George, you were saying also that you, uh, you, obviously you know Larissa, but you helped her out with uh, an early studio before Dan got involved. Yeah, before she made it to California, she was in Washington, D.C. area, I believe. Yep. And uh, she had called me and, well, that was a number of years ago, at least five or six, probably, to you know assess her home studio and kind of troubleshoot. And I, I believe memory serves that the main issue we were discussing was acoustics. Uh-huh. And that seems to be the, the issue the majority of the time with home studios, personal studios, project studios, is, is acoustics. Getting the acoustics right um, is the biggest challenge of all. So that's what a lot of people will consult me with uh, and help them deal with getting the acoustics and the and all that sorted and the mic placement, which works directly with the room acoustics and the size of the room, which could be yeah. a nice segue. Yeah, yeah. It, Into it just starts. Sean Corwell, who works in an open room, who discussed that on the um, VO Atlanta mm. special. I, I was curious about that, how that would work. Yeah, uh, I'll give put my two cents in since I was warmed up. Uh, but the um, a larger room, I think, is really really nice to have when you can when you can afford the space. Uh, you um, with a larger space, you have a natural resonant frequency of that room that's much much lower. So 
the fundamental mode or the, the frequency that the room wants to ring, kind of like ringing a bell, a big bell rings lower. Um, if you have a larger room, that frequency is going to be below your vocal range in many cases. And so you eliminate that frequency, that end, low, low end stuff from getting into the recording. And as the room gets smaller, that frequency goes higher and higher until you end up with like a three by three, you know, booth where that resonant frequency is right smack in the middle of the vocal range. And you really have to deal with that with a lot of bass trapping and and other things. So I like the big rooms when when they're possible, but they certainly have a lot of their own challenges. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Robert, you're in a big room today, right? Uh, I I am in like my little music room here. So actually in this room, there's very little uh, absorption, but um, so I'm not sure how it's sounding to everybody. You can hear it. It's ringing. Yeah, it's ringing, the, but the it's ringing, ringing like a in a pleasant way. It's not yeah, it's resonating. Not, no, it's not. Well, it's just, yeah, it's it like this a is a no parallel. Yes. There, there's no parallel surfaces in here. In fact, the ceiling's vaulted at an angle, which pissed off the carpenter. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but ev- there's literally no parallel surfaces in here, and that sort of helps things not, you know, infinitely ring around, and it gives it life without. You know, um, but one thing I can say just from other types of projects in ADR, a lot of the times you're trying to do ADR and you have a talent who you're trying to replace something that was shot outside. And that is one of the hardest things. If you got someone in a small room and then you want to make them sound like they're outside, have fun. Um, you, you really have to have that room dealt with well. But if you have a bigger room and you get a lot of absorption in there, so it's not, you know, reflecting, then the room goes away much quicker and you can put that person in any type of environment much easier. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense because the bigger the room, it kind of the walls literally are farther away. And so they, there's just less distance and, and the signal to noise ratio, which is probably the biggest thing in these things is the closer you are to that mic, the gain is lower. The mic hears the room less and hears you more. Yeah. That's where the mic placement comes in. Yeah. The, the, in big rooms, you you can afford to work the mic a, a bit further away. Um, but I find that in really small studio spaces, because of the early reflections, um, you know, that initial bounce off the wall above, the, the ceiling above, whatever, even if it's got two or three or four inches of foam on it, it still sounds, still does pass through it. The foam basically filters out everything above two and 300 hertz. But everything below that, guess what? bounces right off the wall and comes right back into the mic, creating that hollow, I'm in a box sound. So it does bigger spaces don't have that hollow box sound, you know, mm. and that's, I love them. They sound great. So what, when you say a bigger space, where would you start? What would be the entry level bigger space? That's a good question. Um, what, is the, what is the line I, between a small room and a big room? I think beginning at seven feet and like, at least a seven by five, I would consider that like a medium room and a, a big room, like a Foley room, you know, you're, I think you're talking more in the area of like a 15 foot kind of wall and maybe 10 feet, but like some big, big rooms. It takes, acoustics are hard to get rid of, you know, like <laughs> you can kill the walls as much as you can, but the base is the hardest thing to get rid of. And that's that, that's where that boxiness definitely comes from. The, the room I'm in now is about six foot wide and about eight foot uh, long. Yeah, that's getting out yeah. of small room territory yeah. to me. That's like a, Absolutely. a nice medium size that you can really get, you know, good control over a room that size. And then how, how high is the ceiling? Then? The ceiling is cathedral. So at one end, it's only six foot and a bit. Uh, the other end, it would be about seven foot something. Okay, yeah. yeah, so it's overall on the low side, but the fact that it's sloped is yeah. helping things a bit, I'm sure. Yeah, And there's all kinds of things with rooms. There's these golden ratios of, you know, walls, like length to width and things like that, because, you know, it's not just the air volume, but the ratio of the room, of the walls. Because if you had a 30-foot wall on one side and a two-foot wall on the other side, you're still going to get a lot of bounce between that two-foot dimension. Yep. So. I mean, that's an extreme case, but there are, you know, you look at the acoustics papers and whatnot, and there's these, there's this curve that shows like kind of these golden ratios. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, George. Have you seen those? Yeah, golden ratio. Uh-huh. It's kind of like the the ratio of the length to the width, the length and width of the room to the ceiling. And exactly. You, the worst possible scenario is a cube. Uh, yeah. You do right. not want to record in a cube. Next up, you don't want to record so much in a square either, if you can avoid it. 
So you really want to record in a, in a rectangle, you know, with where no two dimensions are the same, nor are they too terribly close, and nor are they too terribly different either, because then you have a corridor, you know, right. a hallway. hallway. So then, so then you start getting bigger. You just keep moving those walls out. Now the whole non-parallel wall thing, leave that to the pros. I mean, I mean that's complicated. And I, I think that I also think. gets more into like a music thing where you're wanting the room to have life yeah. and actually you want reflections, but you don't want reflections with frequency. You want reflections yeah. with kind of randomness. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know how much the non-parallel wall thing helps with uh, with the low frequency. It probably helps a little bit, but definitely if you've ever walked, you know, what's, what's the classic place where you can clap your hands and hear the boing? That's really the reason to not have parallel walls is because it can't, bounce back and forth infinitely. Um, well, that room we were uh, recording in last week, I forgot to do it when we were doing the podcast, but uh, I did it when I was doing another podcast with Dan I, for VOBS. I saw you. Yeah. And it, was, it did the, the perfect ping pong. Like that when you clap your hands. I mean, it was really bad. Like you guys could have put anything on either of these two walls and that would have helped, you know, something. Yeah. And what's funny is like, you know, you clap your hands to hear it made obvious, but that is still happening in it's combing out the sound of your voice. You know, it still is at lower volumes reflecting back and interacting with what the mic is hearing. So, but that's still happening. Mic placement, you can try to find a, place in the room where those uh, sort of slapping, free, uh, you know, slap echoes are uh, minimized. If you really have a room like that, you get into the porta booths and those things trying to shield the mic from hearing all that stuff. Yeah. Interesting story to leave us with. A friend of mine recorded Annie Lennox many years ago in, um, in a church hall in France. And she, he's told the story that she spent about two hours walking around the room, clicking her fingers just walking around. And then she said, wow. put the mic this here. This is the spot. Yeah, yeah. Sure. David Bowie is recording Heroes, and you know how as he sings louder, it gets more roomy? Yeah. And mm, what, sure. they had, what they had done is they'd set up a series of microphones farther and farther away from him and gated them. So as he sung louder, the volume of his voice opened up those more distant mics. And oh, wow. Therefore let in more of the room, and that was part of that... Hero's vocal effect. Yeah. He's not cool. What yeah, and that was something idea. he actually continued doing, I think, for um, for, oh. for most of his career. Because I, I did see an interview where someone was talking about exactly that. It was uh, fascinating. The David Bowie mic setup, vocal mic setup. Awesome. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was only a Hero's thing, but yeah, cool. Yeah, well, I, you could be It'd right, be a... but um, I, did, I did remember seeing that. I thought he used it more, but I could be wrong. That'd be a great demonstration for people learning about mic placement and what yeah, it would sound like it? to be able to take the ISO tracks from something like that and let them hear mm. what those placements sound. That's that would be really neat. I should recreate that sometime. Yeah, yeah. Be very cool. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, um, we can all go and do a bit of homework about the uh, the golden was it the golden Golden ratio? The golden ratio. Think, yeah, the golden ratio. Yeah. 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 I think cool. that's what they refer to it as. I'm yeah. going to listen to some David Bowie, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, good move. I love that album, Heroes. See you next week, next fortnight. Sure. Everybody coming back or not? We all had enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are, you, are, you, are you talking about the listeners or us? Yeah, yeah, uh, both. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wipe the tear, baby, dear, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know. I'll be tickled to death to go. Don't cry. Don't sigh. There's a silver lining in the sky. Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin chin, na poo, toodaloo, goodbye.